You're listening to the Happy as a Mother podcast. Today, we are welcoming Dr. Shelby Harris to the show. Dr. Shelby holds a PsyD, is a clinical psychologist, and a sleep specialist. She is board certified in behavioral sleep medicine and treats a wide variety of sleep, anxiety, and depression issues using evidence-based treatments. Sleep has been a really hot topic in our community. As a mom of three, I understand how my world could rise and fall around sleep in those early postpartum stages, even with littles and toddlers. So much of this conversation always focuses on and centers around baby sleep. But what happens if it is mom who's struggling to sleep or these wakings in the night are causing insomnia? Sometimes baby sleep is the trigger to a much bigger sleep issue that we experience as mothers. I put my fingers to work researching and Googling and searching for somebody who could really unpack and understand mom's sleep for us so that we can work towards a plan around helping mom get sleep that isn't just about trying to control baby sleep schedule and how our kids are sleeping. Through this research, I came across Dr. Shelby Harris. She has a book called The Women's Guide to Overcoming Insomnia, and she is a wealth of knowledge on this topic. I had so many questions for her, like a whole list of questions that I knew from the get-go this was going to be a part one and part two. In part one today, we unpack insomnia, troubles getting to sleep, trouble staying asleep, and why this happens. Is this a psychological thing? Is this a physical thing? a medical thing, a hormonal thing, the more I begin to dive into the area of sleep, the more complex I discover it to be. And Dr. Shelby brings some real clarity to this for us today. If you are a mom who has laid in bed when the house is asleep, staring at the roof, wondering why the heck you're the only one awake when you are exhausted and know you should be sleeping, this interview with Dr. Shelby is for you. Maternal sleep deprivation can be an uphill battle for moms. Moms that suffer from sleep deprivation are more likely to develop postpartum depression, anxiety, and other mental health challenges. Once a mom develops postpartum depression or anxiety, getting adequate sleep is also a vital part of the treatment plan. Unfortunately, sleep disturbances are a part of being a new parent. Babies often wake up through the night, even up to a year. If your baby isn't a unicorn sleeper, it doesn't mean you're failing. When we focus only on mom sleeping when baby sleeps, it creates a lot of stress and frustration leading to more sleep difficulties. I created a sleep plan for mom, ways to protect maternal sleep in the postpartum period to help us take back some control over our sleep. You'll learn to bust common sleep myths and create an individualized sleep plan that works for you so that you can start to get some rest again without relying on how well your baby sleeps. Your sleep matters. Your mental health matters. And you matter. Go to happyasmother.co slash sleep to download your free copy today. That's happyasmother.co slash sleep. Welcome to the Happy as a Mother podcast, where we are dedicated to helping you cope with the load of motherhood. I'm your host and registered psychotherapist, Erica Jossa. Let's work together in letting go of shame and guilt 
accepting where we are in our journey, and moving towards becoming the women we want to be. We will hear from experts, learn practical tips, and listen in on honest conversations. Please note that the information shared in this podcast is for educational purposes only and should not replace the advice of your healthcare provider. Okay, let's dive in. Dr. Shelby, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us today. I have been searching for the right person to have this conversation with for a while, Googling, you know, ferociously searching and stumble upon your book and some of the articles you've written and things you've been featured in. So thank you. Thank you for taking the time to be here. Thank you, Erica, for having me. I'm really excited to be here. How does one narrow down the field of psychology? Like you have a PsyD. That is such a broad, generalized practice, <laughs> right? Yep. How does one narrow down their niche to be sleep? How did that come about? Well, I think it all started, I was a sleepwalker as a kid and a young teenager. So I was always really just interested in sleep and like, why was I just doing these crazy things in the middle of the night, walking around my house? And from there, when I went to college, they had a really big adolescent sleep researcher there. And it just made me start thinking a little bit more about sleep and how sleep can fit into life in general. And then I was debating going to graduate school for psychology. And just before I went, I worked on a study that looked at addictions and people who were in rehab for alcoholism. And we were actually treating their sleep disorders in rehab. And we found that if you get people actually sleeping better early on in treatment, their risk of relapse reduced significantly because they weren't having to start drinking again to help sleep. So it made me start thinking like, if we focused on sleep a little bit more in these areas, just imagine how much more it could benefit in our lives. So when I went to graduate school, I found a graduate school that had an insomnia and nightmares professor. And I worked with him there. And from then on, I worked in sleep labs and all that sort of stuff and just kind of paired psychology with sleep medicine. Like fascinating. So (laughs) fascinating. And I love that like most people, when I ask their story, there's some sort of like personal vested interest in like why we go this route like my own postpartum experience with Mm. postpartum anxiety and depression was why this platform was built and so many others come with their own experiences that really create this passion to understand this topic more. In the community here, sleep is a big conversation. We got moms sort of like zero to one years up to zero to five years and beyond, but primarily in those younger early years. And so sleep has been a really hot topic around here lately, kind Mm -hmm. of from all angles. And I'm realizing that there are so many things involved in sleep. It's kind of like you think you know an answer, right? As something like, oh, it's simple. You just do this. But then when you dive into a topic and you start to learn more about it, the more you realize you know very little about this topic. Have you experienced that before? Like in school or something? You think you know. You get in it, you're like, whoa, I know nothing. I didn't know enough. (laughs) Exactly. So that's kind of the more I dive in here, the more I'm like, whoa, there's a lot. There's Mm -hmm. a lot involved here. Yeah. So I've already determined sort of off air with you, this is going to be a two-part series. And in this part, we're going to cover like what contributes to insomnia. So we've got momsomnia and insomnia. We're going to carve out what those are and really try to understand sleep is a what kind of issue? Like, is this like a medical issue? Is this a psychological issue? Like, I find the water's very muddy here. Mm -hmm. 
You know, I think when we talk about sleep too, it's a matter of what are we talking about with sleep, right? So is it trouble falling asleep, staying asleep? Is it you sleep, but you don't feel like it's restorative? Are there other things? So it can be a bunch of different things. It could be medical, psychiatric, uh, who knows? It really varies from case to case. Right. And I think that makes it so challenging because I'll have moms come in, let's say, Mm -hmm. as clients, and they're not getting sleep. And often what I find happens in this postpartum period is we try to really control our baby sleep because that is like the trigger of lack of sleep or whatever. And sometimes that, you know, significantly really or realistically is the trigger, of course. Babies are waking up, right? But then it can have this like cascading impact on our own sleep. I would love to talk a little bit about just, okay, let's define what sleep problems and insomnia look like first, and then maybe we can talk about some of the components that feed into that. Right. So sleep problems is a huge, it's a very vague kind of term. So when people are saying, I have trouble with my sleep, what does that mean, right? So I think a lot of the times when people are talking to me, they're talking more about insomnia because that's a super common issue, right? Mm -hmm. 30-ish percent, 15 to 30% of the population has chronic insomnia. 50, 50% has some trouble sleeping here and there. And I would argue that those rates are even higher now with the pandemic. Right. So what is that? So insomnia is trouble falling asleep, trouble staying asleep, or trouble awakening earlier than you want. And it happens at least three times a week and is going on to be short-term for a month to three months. And if it's long-term chronic, it's going on at least three months or more. Mm. And I think the thing to think about is if you listen to that definition, it's normal to have a bad night here and there. I don't sleep perfect every night. So Mm -hmm. if it's happening in those three or more nights a week for multiple weeks, months on end, you definitely meet the criteria for chronic insomnia. And then there's other things. Like the other biggest thing I see with women is there can be sleep apnea, which is snoring, but it doesn't have to be the kind of loud, obnoxious snoring we think of with men typically. Mm. It can be pauses in your breathing. You wake up with headaches, you urinate a lot, and you just feel like you're dragging, you're sleepy during the day. And the other big thing I see that causes trouble with sleep quality with women is restless legs. So that you go to bed and you just can't, especially during pregnancy and postpartum, Mm. is that you just, your legs and your arms are just constantly restless and it makes it harder to fall asleep. And women don't talk about that stuff very often. They don't want to talk about their snoring. They don't want to talk about the other things other than just insomnia. And we often get pigeonholed, I think, sometimes, well, you're just anxious, you have a baby. Those are all the things that are making you not sleep. It's a very multifactorial um, issue. Yes. I couldn't agree more where it gets dismissed. So many things, mental health-wise, Mm sleep-wise, get dismissed. It's like, oh, you just, you have a new baby, you're a new mom, right? And this is such a high-risk time for moms to develop really chronic anxiety, depression, insomnia. We can talk about some of the hormones and things that you cover in your book. So I have your book here. It's The Women's Guide to Overcoming Insomnia. Really insightful and helpful. And I love that it specifically addresses women Thank you. because of these hormonal changes, because of you know pregnancy, postpartum, perimenopause, menopause. You know We know that our hormones fluctuate in this time. And it sounds like hormones are huge, directly tied to sleep, yep. right? But I had to share a little personal story as you're talking about snoring. It's so funny. I was floored. This was like a couple months ago. I've been married for nine, almost 10 years, been together mm-hmm. 12, 13 years. My husband just disclosed to me that apparently I snore. I'm like, have you been keeping this secret? <laughs> He's so cute and respectful because I was like, you know what? I'm going to get some earplugs because like, 
you know, I'm having trouble sleeping or I'm a light sleeper. And so I'm going to get some earplugs mm-hmm. to sleep at night because, you know, when you snore, it wakes me up. He's like, you do know you snore, right? I'm like, oh, my gosh. Right. I feel like you've been keeping this from me. It was so <sighs> funny. He's so like Sweet. kind and respectful and yeah, wouldn't like, you know, disturb my routine of sleep in any way. Mm. So too funny. But you call that out in the book when it comes to sleep disturbances yeah. and sleep apnea or other things that it's kind of this silent thing that we don't observe for ourselves or don't know necessarily. We don't. And I think there's like I was saying earlier, there's this misnomer in our society that it's men. It's older men who are overweight. And I see plenty of women who are thinner, who are athletic, who don't necessarily meet that stereotypical criteria for apnea. And we also see apnea more and more in women who are pregnant, and especially Mm -hmm. as you get to the third trimester. And it's all stuff like if you snore, if you have any pauses in your breathing at night, it's all stuff that can look like insomnia for some people because you might wake up in the middle of the night because of snoring and then have trouble going back to sleep. But if you actually talk to your doctor about the snoring and find a doctor who will listen to you or at least do a home sleep study, it doesn't mean you have to sleep in a sleep lab. You can have Mm. a machine for most people sent to your house that will be a good screener. That that's really important because a lot of times women are dragging if they have sleep apnea. They don't have energy during the day. They don't feel like any sleep they get is restorative. That is a really big culprit that gets misdiagnosed as depression Mm. so often Mm -hmm. for women. Yeah, this really became more clear to me when you were describing in your book the difference between sleepy versus fatigue. Mm-hmm. Fatigue and low motivation, and you associate it as like kind of like dragging a bag of bricks with you. Yes. Right? And when I went through postpartum, this is what I had explained it as to my husband. Like when I got treatment and started to improve, I was like, I literally feel like shackles have been taken off of my mm-hmm. feet and I can move forward without resistance now. Like right. that's what it feels like. That's such a great way to think about it, right? So the fatigue aspect is huge. Like, And I think the other thing that really is frustrating is that women just it kind of gets normalized and we mm. just wear it almost as like a badge of honor. Oh, it's normal to be tired. You should be tired. And like some doctors will say to them, I'm tired all the time. It's fine. Don't worry about it. Like, no, no. Right. So fatigue is one thing. But if you feel like even if with, with enough sleep, you're still tired or you're trying to sleep at night and you can't, fatigue is very common. So people try to go to sleep at night when they have insomnia and they can't. They're tired, but their brain is wired. And that's a big problem with insomnia. Then the sleepiness If you have apnea, oftentimes, if there's other things medically going on, those are people who are just like falling asleep and they just can't, they have times during the day when they can't keep their eyes open. That's a different feeling. That's actually the irrepressible need for sleep. You are Mm. sleeping. Fatigue is this, I just don't have any energy, like you said, carrying a ton of bricks around all the time. And that's what a lot of women with insomnia feel, more so than like they say they can't nap because they're not actually sleeping. They're tired. There's a difference. Mm. Such an important difference. Yeah. When we think about sleepy, I think about my friend's husband who like, he's the one at the party after dinner who's like falling asleep, sitting up yeah. on the couch, sleepy, right? Yeah. Versus this real fatigue and exhaustion. I think that so many moms who are, if they're in the postpartum period, can probably relate to, yeah. you know, if they're waking with children in the night and stuff, this real sort of pervasive exhaustion that they feel. It's such a common thing. But if you're breastfeeding in the middle of the night, if you're having other things that cause you to have to wake up, fine. It's normal to be fatigued during that time. Mm -hmm. But if you can protect a certain amount of sleep 
and you still have trouble falling asleep, you wake up in the middle of the night just on your own and you're still tired during the day, that is not a badge of honor to be wearing. You should really talk to a doctor about appropriate treatment for it. Okay. I love that. I love that distinction. So like loaded question coming your way. Why in the heck do we struggle with sleep so much, especially as women, especially in this pregnant and postpartum period? Like what are the factors (sighs) here that are contributing? So for women, there's a few factors. So one is the psychological. So women tend to have more issues with anxiety and depression, and that just sets you a little bit more stress. That sets you a little bit higher at risk of developing insomnia. So if we're talking about sleep, I'm going to reference more insomnia because that's what's most common. Mm -hmm. And then if you take the psychological, then you take the biological part. So the biological part is the bummer aspect of it. So what we find is that girls and boys before adolescence happens, they actually have the same rates of sleep issues. Once adolescence kicks in, women have a much higher rate than men Hmm. because of hormones. So there are some people that every month when they're about to get their period, the few days before they actually get their period, they have insomnia because of the spikes and then the drops in estrogen. And then there are, once you have a baby, when you're pregnant, super common to have insomnia. It doesn't mean you can't work on it and treat it, but you're having first trimester, you're usually waking up because you have to urinate so much at night. For me, it was heartburn and having to urinate. Second trimester is a little bit better. Mm. Third trimester, there's just all the natural anxieties. You have to pee constantly. You're uncomfortable. You can't sleep well. You're having more dreams. Those are all things that influence it. And then once the baby comes, that's you know a whole other ball game, right? The yeah. baby's up a lot in the middle of the night. You're losing more sleep over it. And there's also the hormones that are kind of trying to equal out while you're breastfeeding, if you're breastfeeding, and just after postpartum. And then what we often see with women too, which I see more and more, is that even once the baby starts sleeping better, we become conditioned to wake up in the middle of the night or to listen mm. that it makes it harder to sleep. And so that keeps going. And then maybe that evens out a little bit for a while. And then we get hit with perimenopause. And during perimenopause, we're having hormone changes and up until menopause when you fully stop having your period. So it's like a constant cycle of hormones, stress, biology. And then the other thing is social. So as women nowadays, we have more demands on us than ever. Mm. So women are taking care of their kids. And then oftentimes, some women are having babies later in life that they actually have parents who are aging that they have to take care of as well. Mm-hmm. Work, family demands, all those things, just that extra stress can definitely impact our sleep as well. Yeah. And talk to me about the hormones that play a role in our sleep here. Because you mentioned it and associated with like our menstrual cycle, mm-hmm. the couple days leading into our starting our period, we're more likely to experience insomnia, right? Yeah. We have shifts in estrogen and progesterone. So those are the things that we see when you get your period, there's a sharp drop in it. And for some women, it's insomnia, it can be premenstrual, dysphoria, like depression, can be headaches. It's those drops in our hormones that actually worsen sleep for a lot of people. It's an instability. And progesterone is a very calming, sleep-inducing hormone that we Mm. start to have less of during that time. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And then we often see correlations with our mood during these shifts as well, right? Exactly. Increased anxiety, any underlying sort of depression or anxiety or or mood stuff going on kind of gets aggravated during that time. A hundred percent. And I do encourage women, if they do think that they have some insomnia, to get out a tracker, track when they're having their period and see when they're having their insomnia issues. People don't realize it, but it can be a very identifiable trigger of, oh, always four days before I get my period, that's when I have these sleep problems. So it's a simple Mm -hmm. thing to do that can really give you a lot of insight that you can then go to your gynecologist with armed with some information. 
Yeah. And there's something about knowing the pattern of it that helps us to be prepared for when it comes. Mm -hmm. We know that, you know, we have to maybe adjust some things for this period of time and it feels more like we feel more empowered to manage it when we can, you know, track the pattern a little bit more. Exactly. Okay. I love how you go through in the book, and we're going to get to the sleep hygiene pieces and the tools, but how you break Mm -hmm. it down also considering pregnancy and postpartum and perimenopause, because these are big shifts and transitions in our life. And I think Mm -hmm. one of the things that I find myself always wrestling with is like, is this more a psychological thing? Is this more of a medical thing? And you really call this out when you identify the three Ps. There used to be this understanding that these were a result of yes. depression and anxiety. Is that correct? 100%. Yeah. That's the older way of thinking about it. And I okay. got to tell you, still, it's a very common way of thinking about it. Very pervasive. Yeah. Very pervasive. So the old idea was that if you had insomnia, it was because of another issue. So we used to actually, even in our nomenclature for sleep, we would say you had primary insomnia, which was we can't think of anything that's causing it. You just have insomnia. And then we would say secondary insomnia, which was that it was secondary to another thing that caused it. Mm. We have since gotten rid of that term. We just have insomnia. That's it. And the reason being is that there can be a gazillion reasons why someone may develop insomnia. Sometimes it's obvious. Sometimes it's not. So that's when we think about the three Ps. So it's the predisposing factors. So maybe you're someone who works shifts. Maybe you have a baby who doesn't sleep at well at home. Maybe you have a family history of insomnia or a family history of anxiety. Those are all things that might set the stage for insomnia, but they don't necessarily mean that you're going to develop it. And then what happens is you have a precipitating factor. So that is usually people can identify, but not always. So something sets the insomnia. It could be pregnancy. It could be perimenopause. It could be a good stress, like getting married or a new job. It could be an excitement or a nervous, like a nervous excitement. Yes. It's something that goes on. It could be the state of the world. Mm. Who knows? So there are things that will kick off insomnia for many people. Not always. We don't always identify it, but in many cases you can. And it can be medical, psychological, can be social, like we were just saying. And then once you develop that, you have insomnia, which is part of, I got to say, being a human being, Mm -hmm. right? I have bad nights of sleep here and there because I'm a human and I'm reactive to stress. But once it starts going on for a good month, right, then it becomes more chronic. Well, even three months is more chronic, but it starts to become an issue. And what we start doing is we perpetuate it without realizing it. So we start doing things like napping, going to bed earlier if we can to catch the sleep or sleep in if we can. We start a lot of times thinking more about sleep than we ever had before, worrying about whether or not you're going to sleep. Some people start using sleep aids, alcohol to sleep, all these sorts of things that are common sense that make you say, okay, hopefully this will help me get through today. Mm. And the reality is that's the stuff that's actually maintaining the insomnia for many people. It might not be that initial thing that may have kicked it off. It's all the stuff that we're doing in the long run to maintain it, that's the common sense, that's actually worsening it. And that's why in the sleep field, we treat insomnia as a separate issue from any of the other stuff that might have started at the beginning, because it takes on a life of its own. Mm. And I see how this becomes the behavioral piece, right? Because we are doing and engaging in these behaviors or thoughts or worries or things that are perpetuating this this Mm -hmm. we have been an isolated incident of insomnia that is now being perpetuated by how we've reacted to it. 
Yes. Okay. Yes. And I think, and I keep saying, you know, it's normal to have a bad night here and there, but I think also there's this culture of sleep being the most important thing ever and you have to sleep perfect every night. And if you like that, some people, if they don't have a good night or two or a bad week, they start getting more anxious about it because they think about all the bad things that are going to happen and that perpetuates it more. So it's about being aware of that and then seeing what you're doing or the pressure you're putting on yourself to sleep that's then maintaining it. And that's where we really work behaviorally and cognitively when it comes for sleep interventions. Okay. Okay. So let me think about this from a postpartum mom's Mm -hmm. perspective. Okay. Yeah. And we're talking those factors that kick off insomnia. Well, I got to waken up baby every so often, Mm -hmm. or I still today, I had a toddler who climbed into bed in the middle of the night, actually two. There was a lot of ironic leading into our interview. There was several Mm. sleep disturbances last night that are not typical, like knock on wood in our home. So You know, these things kick off this focus on sleep or this awareness of a lack of sleep. And what do we tend to see happens from there? Like, how does that get prolonged or what might we be doing in in these middle of the night wake-ups that are unhelpful to us? Right. So in the middle of the night stuff, I think the biggest thing that most people do, and I think I was guilty of it myself, is if I'm doing a feed in the middle of the night, I then I'm on my phone because it passes the time. Or we turn on the lights. Try to think about what would be calming for yourself and your own brain while you're doing what you need to do. Because all the light exposure, even though I know it helps pass the time, it actually is worsening your sleep overall. Mm. And I always encourage people, especially in the early postpartum period, it's interesting, like you were saying earlier, we think so much about getting our kids sleep our baby sleep. I, I mean, I have people who call me before they've even had the babies, like, how can I get my baby in a good sleep pattern right after they, you know, I have the baby. I'm like, no, no, we're not doing that yet. We're going to wait a few months. Mm-hmm. Well, I'll give you some general standards, but don't expect a baby to sleep perfectly right out of the bat. Mm-hmm. So it's about thinking about where you, if possible, can get help. If you can protect four hours, ideally six, but at least four hours of sleep for yourself and think about it before the baby comes, get that lined up, that will pay off in spades mm-hmm. long term. And if you're someone who has had anxiety or depression before the baby came, you're at a higher risk of developing postpartum anxiety or depression if you're sleep depression. Mm-hmm. So really being thoughtful about it before the baby comes, trying to get help where you can, And if you're someone who is feeding throughout the night, you're solely breastfeeding, then think about what can you do or have someone, if it's possible, not everyone has help in the middle of the night. We have to accept that and deal with what can we get in the middle of the day to get a little break here and there. But if in the middle of the night, maybe you have someone else come in, if you're doing all the breastfeeding, have that other person in dim light do the changing, Mm -hmm. change the clothes, change the diaper. So it's really a very specific job for you as opposed to many things in the light that make your sleep even more disrupted. It is so important for us to carve this out Mm -hmm. for moms. Like I know as a first-time mom who has postpartum anxiety and depression, sort of retroactively out of it, can see it now, felt this intense pressure. Like I'm going to take on this role and I'm going to tackle it and I'm going to be perfect at it and I'm going to do all the things and it's my responsibility and it's on me to figure it out. Yep. And so I was up with every feed. I was doing every every soothing, every change, everything was my responsibility. Yep. And not because I didn't have a supportive partner, but because I felt like it was my duty to take on. Yep. And so found ourselves in some really unhelpful patterns and beyond sleep deprived, which was not helpful and really not like prioritizing baby sleep. But then it becomes about 
wanting to control baby's sleep instead of backing out and having a plan for my own sleep, right? Exactly. So like when we think that our sleep only comes when baby's sleep comes, Mm -hmm. no, then our mind goes to, I must control this sleep in order for me to get restorative sleep. And what we're saying here is we've got to break these two things apart. They cannot be Like they are to some degree tethered together, but they can't always be, right? No, they can't. And it's not always going to be this beautiful plan of do this, do this, do this, and your baby will be sleeping through the night at two months. It doesn't work that way. No. So really, I think educating yourself on what normal, quote unquote, sleep looks like for babies Mm -hmm. and not what people would love for it to be and how you can kind of carve out your own framework in that model is going to be much more beneficial in the long run. And I get it's hard to do. I fell prey to it myself. When I had my first, I struggled with breastfeeding so much that I was I was trying to breastfeed. I wasn't producing anything. I was seeing consultants. I was trying all these things. And then I would pump mm-hmm. and I would then mm-hmm. we would supplement. I was sleeping so little that I was starting to become depressed that it took other people in my family to sit me down mm-hmm. and say, you need to sleep and you need to like loosen up these ideals that you have for yourself. And if someone like me yeah. falls prey to it, and I hadn't even thought about it before the baby had come, like I can't imagine for people who it's not top of mind for them when it comes to sleep and mood. Totally. And I feel the same way from my perspective. I was a therapist who taught anxiety and depression skills and CBT and stuff for a living. And here I was slipping into anxiety and depression. Like, who am I? What is happening here? Right? Exactly. Because these ideals that we carry so strongly. But I really love this idea of like not falling under the assumption that I only get sleep when the baby gets sleep, but like I have to carve out my own plan for sleep that is separate from my baby's plan for sleep. And that means that I bring my partner in for support or that maybe means I bring my in-laws in if there's a good relationship there to do a bottle feed in the middle of the night on a weekend if possible so that I can get a consecutive four to six hours of sleep or something. And I know all circumstances are different and things like that, but being intentional around our own individual plan for sleep. Yeah. And even if you don't have someone to help at night, getting some help during the day. Hmm. An hour, two hours, because that whole idea of sleep when the baby sleeps, it's lovely in theory, but I don't know about you. I was never able to do it because I was always keeping one ear open, waiting for the baby to wake up, that I was never able to fall asleep myself. So knowing that there's someone else there who can step in, who can help out for even an hour or two can give you those respites of sleep a little bit easier than if it's just yourself trying to fit it in when the baby's sleeping. Mm -hmm. And from what I could gather from your book, napping isn't ideal when it comes to insomnia. I feel like there's an asterisk there in the postpartum period. Would there be? Oh, yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah. Because that's a whole other ball game. Like there are some people, if you have the time to sleep, when it comes to insomnia, it's really that you have the adequate time to sleep, but you just can't. So I see. if routinely you're trying to sleep and your baby's sleeping, but you just can't turn your brain off or you're having very late, then we have to have a plan about napping. But if you are able to protect more time, you still can't sleep, then we talk about no naps for many people. But it, yeah, it's very individualized when it comes to the postpartum period, for sure. Yeah. And night support, like you said, isn't always yep. readily as accessible, but I may be able to get a friend over for an afternoon, exactly. hand them the monitor. I'm a big fan of good old earplugs in the ears and just really yeah. like shutting off that hypervigilant ear for those yep. few hours if we can. And I love all the monitors that we have. The technology, even I have a 12-year-old and a 6-year-old. Since my 12-year-old and my 6-year-old were born, the technology has gone above and beyond now. But sometimes you have to also think about 
where your anxiety and hypervigilance level is. So for some people, a lot of data on some of these monitors is wonderful. For other people, I'm like, babies make noise. It's normal. Turn the volume down. You don't need to hear every single noise because it's going to impact your sleep even more. So it's really just trying to think about what works for you in your life and maybe brings your anxiety down a little bit so that you're not hearing every little thing to wake up. Mm-hmm. Like as I reflect, it's really helpful. If I would have done things differently, um, you know, because I had the baby attached to my bed in like a co-sleeping bassinet style. Yep. When I tell you I woke up and reacted to every wiggle in that bassinet, I was so hypervigilantly attuned. It doesn't matter what level of sleep I was in. Mm-hmm. I was awake. Yeah. Which interfered with my sleep and probably trained some very horrible sleepers because I intervened at times that I didn't need to, you know, like it it, it sort of reinforced these negative sleep patterns where even if I just put that bassinet a little out of arm's reach, I would have been less inclined to like jump up right away. Exactly. And so like I centered baby's sleep so strongly out of just, you know, new mom worry and fear and all these things that I didn't make any plans for my own sleep. And I think that there's a really well-balanced approach to be found here. Yeah. And I think it's a conversation to be had with your OBGYN, doula, whoever you're working with, to really think about before the baby comes. Because once the baby comes, you have enough other stuff to worry about. So Mm -hmm. if you can really think about it that way. And it's a conversation that doesn't get had enough. It's really, like you were saying, baby-focused. Yeah. But if we think about it as the family – it makes a big difference when it comes to coping. Yeah. And on that note, as we wrap up this part one, and we're going to deliver all kinds of sleep hygiene interventions and things for you in part two. But in that part one, where people are thinking about reaching out to sleep support for around their child's sleep. Mm-hmm. Now, everyone and their mother these days on Instagram is a sleep coach. So Dr. Shelby, can you help us like understand what to look for in someone who feels like credible to to handle our child's sleep? It's tough because it's a little bit of the wild, wild west out it there. It feels like that, doesn't so it? So it is. Yeah. And even we're starting to see it more and more when it comes to adult sleep as well. Okay. I think if you find someone who has trained, I mean, the ideal, in my opinion, just because I'm a little biased. Of course. I'm like old school sleep medicine. The ideal is to look at like the pediatric behavioral sleep medicine group or the adult behavioral society behavioral sleep medicine because we have people there who are PhDs who have been trained for ages who know the medical side of it. That being said, I think there are many wonderful coaches out there, but make sure that they have trained, they have been supervised Mm -hmm. and they've actually practiced with someone else supervising them, ask them what kind of training they've had other than I think taking a course is great, but you want someone who's actually had practice and had someone who has a degree who has some sort of license Mm -hmm. really supervising over them. So that's kind of the next group. And there's all these different groups and associations that do have sleep coaches, but someone who just kind of hangs up a shingle because their kids slept well and they kind of have the tricks. I would be a little bit, I mean, it doesn't mean that they don't know what they're doing, but I would just tread a little bit lighter or at least ask them what their qualifications are. But I like to at least have people who've been supervised Mm -hmm. by other people who have the qualifications for sure. Yeah, I tend to gravitate towards licensed professionals, licensed psychologists or master's level therapists who've done some additional research or experience in sleep work specifically. And I think the other thing we don't think about too is that baby sleep, people think it's very mechanical. Like if you're going to do more evidence-based sort of stuff, fine. But a lot of times there are medical things that can get in the way. Of course. So you want to make sure that you've gotten okay from the pediatrician, that you've done all that sort of stuff as, as well, and that you have someone who's knowledgeable about 
apnea, GERD, reflux, all that stuff that could be influencing it as well. Yeah, we have a holistic sleep specialist coming on following you in a couple of weeks because sleep has been a big topic in our community, as I said. Yeah. She was started off as a pediatric nurse and she helps us understand yeah. sleep from a holistic perspective. Wonderful. You know, is it eczema? Like there could be all these things that impact our baby sleep and it's not just these behavioral strategies. And it's not just that we're failing yep. in some way, right? In in implementing them. You have to think about it all. Yeah. Yeah. A hundred percent. All right. We're going to segue here to a part two in a minute. But while people are waiting on the edge of their seat for our, you know, tips and tricks and, and the sleep hygiene piece, where can they find you and find your book in the meantime? So you can find my book, The Women's Guide to Overcoming Insomnia. You can find it very readily available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble. It's all over the place online. And then you can go to my website, which is dr, like Dr. drshelbyharris.com. And then the easiest way to reach me, a lot of people do, is through Instagram. So I'm at sleepdocshelby on Instagram, and I post there routinely throughout the week. And people message me all the time where they can get help. And I love to like get evidence-based info to people through that site. And we will link all of those places in the show notes and all of our social Great. media so that we can make sure people connect with you and find you. And thank you. I can't wait for us to be back for part two. Thank you. Oh my word, isn't Dr. Shelby just so awesome? This conversation is so necessary and needed as pretty much every conversation I hear happening in the postpartum period is anchored in and centered around baby sleep and very few center and focus mom and how she's sleeping and whether there are underlying sleep issues at play. I didn't mean to leave you on a cliffhanger. I know that you want the practical strategies. There was just so much for us to unpack and uncover in these episodes. So part two is full of how we practically apply this and skills and tools that are within our control to help us get a more effective and restful sleep. In the meantime, if you've been listening to this episode and you feel like sleep is a major problem for you, or you feel anxiety as bedtime starts to creep closer and you don't know what the night has in store for you, I encourage you to meet with one of our therapists from our wellness center who can help you build a sleep hygiene routine and the skills you need to approach bedtime with more ease. Head to happyasamother.co slash book to book your free 15-minute consult with one of our mom therapists today. I'll see you right back here, same time, same place, for part two with Dr. Shelby, where we go over the skills and strategies to build a healthy sleep hygiene routine so that we can break any of the patterns or behaviors that we engage in that contribute to our insomnia or lack of sleep. You don't want to miss it. I'll see you right back here next week. I can't even begin to tell you how happy and honored I am that you choose to spend your time here with me each week. If you're looking for the resources and things that were discussed in today's show, you can find them in the show notes, which is linked in the episode description, or you can head directly to happyasamother.co slash podcast and find all of the show notes there. If you're looking for support and connection with other moms, you can head over to facebook.com slash groups slash happy as a mother and join our Facebook community. This community is filled with women just like you and I who want to support and uplift one another through our postpartum journey. And until next episode, mama, I want you to know 
keep showing up. You're doing a great job.